We're studying the life and ministry of Jesus through all four Gospels at the same time. Jesus, the lion man of Judah. That's how he's described in Revelation. Um, Maybe stronger, much more powerful than we always give him credit for. And this morning, we're going to see his interaction with a guy that Jesus calls, as we'll see next week, the greatest man other than himself to have ever lived. And that's John the Baptist, or really, I like to call him John the Baptizer. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But if you've got your Bible, open up to Luke uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 18. I'm going to go ahead and read through the text this morning. And then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll unpack it together. So starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying... Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, Jesus, or shall we look for another? And in that hour, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, He said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one, Jesus says, who is not offended by me. Let's pray. And then we're going to unpack that text together this morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks that um, he is our, our salvation. He is our hope. Thank you that he lived the life we couldn't. And thank you, as we sang, that he is unchanging. And he's the rock that that just flat out does not move. He doesn't change from yesterday to today to tomorrow like we do. He isn't fickle in any way, shape, or form. But he's always steady, always trustworthy, always true, always faithful. Even when we're unfaithful. Teach us that this morning, I pray. And as we look at the the life or, or the circumstance here of John... Might you encourage us to look at our own circumstance and and see our own doubt and bring it, Jesus, to you like John does. Holy Spirit, I I thank you uh, for your grace um, to use me. And I pray uh, now that you would um, let my thoughts be your own thoughts, that you'd even teach me as I'm teaching your word. And I pray against the enemy, Father, servants, their works and effects. He takes your word and twists it and accuses us and tempts us. But... Instead, by the power of your spirit, might you change us and encourage us. I pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So this passage starts off. We see a guy by the name of John. We see a guy by the name of John. And we're going to see him again next Sunday as well. And it's really the last time that we see John in our series and in uh, much of the Gospels. So the question comes to mind, who is John? Who is John? Well, you've heard him referred to, he's referred to in the passage or even as John the Baptist, but I think more accurately, he would be called John the Baptizer. And the reason I say more accurately is simply because for us, when we think Baptist, we think of a a type of church or a denomination. And by the way, if you're unfamiliar with with our church and with the Evangelical Free Church, we're very similar uh, to a Baptist church in many, many ways, doctrinally and, and everything else. But But John wasn't a member of a denomination. He was somebody who baptized people. This description of him being a Baptist, that's what he did. Kind of like Jesus' dad would have been Joseph the carpenter. Or, you know, Bob the builder. Things like that. John the baptizer. Literally, baptizer, to baptize, this word, it means to immerse, to put under the water. To totally immerse into something. And uh, it's a Greek word, and we just transliterated it into English and made the word baptize out of the Greek word that means to immerse. And in some languages, I think, I've told you this, but I think in in one of the Dutch translations, John is actually called John the Dipper, because that's what he does. He just dips people in the water. And that's who he is. He's a baptizer. But his life is extraordinary. His life was announced before he was even conceived. Before he was even made, his life was announced. And not like a few weeks before, not like a year before, like like hundreds of years before. 
First by the prophets Isaiah and Malachi in the Old Testament. Jesus says in 26 and 27, uh, we'll see it next Sunday, that John is more than just a prophet. The reason he says that is because he goes on then to quote the prophecy about him from Isaiah. He wasn't just a prophet. He was one prophesied about. He was more than just a prophet. He's announced by the angel Gabriel then in Luke chapter 1. And we won't rehash all those details, but we talked about those in in messages number 4 and 6 of this series. You can go check that out if you want to online. But if you were here a few years ago when we started this series, you, you remember some of these details about John. See, not only is John extraordinary, but his family is extraordinary. He comes from a pretty remarkable family. His dad, his dad's name is Zechariah. He's a priest. Uh, essentially, he's a pastor at a synagogue in a small town. Rural town of dozens, at the most, maybe 100 people. Small farming, rural community. It's a humble, simple family. Chances are that Zechariah had to work another job for a living to pay the bills. A bivocational pastor. And his dad and his mom, John's mom and dad, Zechariah and Elizabeth, both came from ministry families. They both descended ultimately in the line of Aaron. So John has this, this generational line of ministry in his family which is pretty incredible. As I was reading that this week, I thought about that. That definitely wasn't the case for me, but I'm, I'm thinking about that, what that might mean for, for my son now, for Charlie. His dad's a pastor, his grandpa's an elder, his great-grandpa was a pastor and missionary on Hannah's side, and multi-generational family of ministry. And that's John. That's pretty exciting. Well, this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're humble, they're hardworking in a rural church, they love the Lord, they love people, And before John was born, they really wanted a child. They really wanted a child. And if you know the story, uh, they prayed and prayed and fasted and fasted. And time after time, God didn't give them a child. Until eventually, finally, the prayer that had been unanswered for so long was answered when they were both very old. We don't know how old, but probably most people think probably in their 60s, maybe 70s. And they get their first child. They get pregnant by God's grace with a son that God says, you're going to name him John. And about that same time, Elizabeth's younger relative, a a teenage girl, a virgin by the name of Mary, also gets pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, with this son, this John's cousin, Jesus. So John the baptizer is Jesus' cousin. And and he's Jesus' eccentric cousin. John, if you know anything about him as he grew up, he's, you, you have the people in your family where you go, that side of the family, they're, they're our family, but that's, it's that side, right? That's John. John dressed in camel hair clothing. He lived in the wilderness. He ate bugs and honey for a living or, or for, for, for us to sustain him. And, and he preached the word for a living and, and out of the wilderness, he would come and he would preach. And he was just strange. But Jesus and John would have known each other probably growing up. They didn't live in the same town, but surely their families would have been together at different religious festivals and maybe family reunions and things like that. By the way, if you don't know if you have a weird person in your family, it's probably you. No, I'm just joking. But, but that's, that's John, right? He's the eccentric one. And John's incredible, though. His life is dedicated to ministry and to serving God and his ministry started actually before his cousin Jesus' ministry started. John was a fiery and a mighty preacher. In fact, he was the first prophet to come along in 400 years since the close of the Old Testament. And here comes John in his camel hair clothing, eating his bugs and honey, walking out in the wilderness, preaching the word of God. And multitudes of people went out to see him. Now, why did they go see him? Well, he was kind of strange. They wanted to see him. And the other thing is, is his preaching was powerful. He was an incredible preacher of the word of God. And as he's preaching, many people repent. And many people are baptized to identify with this message that he's preaching of repentance and that the kingdom is coming. And even in the beginning of his ministry, of Jesus' ministry, Jesus would actually go to John, hear him preach, and then be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Well, as I mentioned, John grew up 
in a multi-generational ministry family. He knew God's word. He had devout parents who, who taught him the Bible, taught him the Old Testament growing up. He learned how to pray. He learned how to follow God. He learned how to serve God from his youth. And he becomes a preacher. And as I mentioned, God uses him in amazing ways. He preaches repentance. He gains a huge following. And then what he does is he points them all to Jesus. He points them all to Jesus. That was the focus of his ministry. He was to prepare the way for Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he clearly declares Jesus. John declares Jesus to be the son of God, the Messiah, the one who is to come, like we sang. John says, that's Jesus, that's him. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's God, he's Messiah. John, listen, John knows ministry. He knows his Bible inside out and he knows Jesus maybe better than any one of us in this room, I would argue. Yet John curiously still has questions. We're gonna see this morning. John still has questions, isn't that curious? This guy who had grown up, I don't know about you, I didn't grow up, I mean, I grew up going to church. I learned a lot about God, but I didn't learn to know Jesus until I was in high school. And maybe for some of you, you have no background growing up in the church or understanding the things of the Lord or or studying your Bible. And you're like, man, if I was like John, if I grew up a pastor's kid and I learned all this stuff, man, I, I wouldn't have any dust. That would have been awesome. I would know all these things about the Lord. Yet look at John. He has questions. He has questions. You know, it doesn't matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus, does it? You always still tend to have questions and doubts at some point in your life. And you need to know that when you have questions and when you have doubt, that this is not, as the Bible describes it, this is not unbelief. This is not you've lost your salvation and you've quit believing We believe in a doctrine called uh, the perseverance of the saints, right? Where once Jesus, because Jesus says it himself, I I know my sheep, I hold them in my hand, and no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. That includes me jumping out. If he really has me, he's got me. Would you agree? I mean, that's the clear teaching I believe, and we believe as a church of Scripture. And yet sometimes when we doubt, we start to go, boy, Maybe I lost it. Maybe I threw it away. Maybe I screwed it up. I don't want to doubt. I I don't want to have questions. And yet that doubt is actually, I'm going to argue this morning, part of developing a deep faith. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to teach through this passage and we're going to look at John's doubt and more specifically, maybe your own doubt and my own doubt. And we're going to look at some common causes of it and what we should do when we have doubt. But first, let me say two things just to set this up about this idea of doubt and questioning in Scripture, okay? Number one, doubt is not, I've already said this, but doubt is not unbelief. It is not unbelief. Some commentators say that John uh, quit believing in this passage, that he, uh, no, they're, they're totally wrong. They're smarter than me, but they're wrong. Right? Uh, that's just not the case. Doubt is not unbelief. Doubt, here's, here's how I would describe doubt to you. Doubt is not unbelief. It's a struggle to believe. It's a struggle to believe. Unbelief is a refusal to believe. But doubt is simply a struggle to believe. And I believe doubt is a healthy thing. It's part of bearing God's image. Why do I say that? Well, think about it. God is a rational being and he's made us to be rational beings in his image, to be like him. And if we're going to be rational, then we have to be, have this kind of healthy skepticism to determine what's true and what's not true. And so doubt, as it's referred to in the New Testament, is this idea of a, of a healthy skepticism, not a critical skepticism where I never trust anybody, but, but a healthy one. I mean, think about it. If you didn't have a healthy skepticism or a healthy doubt about things in the way you lived your life, you would probably be broke and dead. Because <laughs> you, be, you would be the definition, your picture would be in the dictionary for gullible. If you didn't have a little bit of skepticism built into who you were, right? That's a healthy thing in terms of, of how God has made you. Uh, John MacArthur, he's a pastor in California, he says that doubt is a really good starting point of faith. It's just not a good ending point. It's healthy to have doubt and experience doubt, but it's not good for us to remain in it. We need to seek it out and have our questions answered. 
And if we're growing, we pursue knowledge. We pursue Jesus. Doubt in our hand and we say, Jesus, I believe, but I don't get this. Help me believe. You know, there's a guy in the New Testament that does that. He comes to Jesus just like that. He's in Mark chapter 9. And he had a son, and his son was possessed by an evil spirit. And so they brought the boy to Jesus. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion. And he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. And he replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. That's what he says, if you can. He believes Jesus can help him, but he's got a little doubt. And Jesus says, what do you mean if I can? This is Mark chapter 9, verses 20 and 20 through 24. Anything, Jesus says, is possible if a person believes. Then the father instantly cried out, I, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Help me with my doubt, is what he says. Help me believe. Many of us are like this, aren't we? You ever find yourself in that spot? I do. Where, where we know what we know is true and we believe it with all our heart, yet sometimes we have a struggle to really believe it and really put it into action in our life. And that's common for the believer. This guy simply, he didn't refuse to believe. He didn't have unbelief. He simply had a struggle to believe. Do you see the difference? And the disciples even at one point say to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith in Luke 17. I should also say this, that doubt isn't unbelief. It's also not the opposite of faith. Sometimes we think the opposite of doubt is faith, and the opposite of faith is doubt. I said it already, but doubt isn't the opposite of faith. I think it's part of growing a healthy faith and growing a deep and abiding faith. Faith is what? It's believing God's word and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, because God promises a good result and God keeps all his promises, right? It's believing God's word. And, and doubt simply says, I'm struggling with that part. I believe God's word, but there's this one piece I'm struggling to believe. And anybody, if you're really trying to believe God's word and act on it, you're going to face some struggle. And we're going to look at what some of those struggles are this morning. In this way, then, I believe doubt's a necessary part of developing a deep and abiding and growing faith. It's a healthy skepticism that, that roots my faith in what's true. Does that make sense? The second thing, so doubt is not unbelief, but the second thing, doubt is common in the life of the believer. If we are all honest, those of you in this room who've trusted Jesus, who've become a Christian, and I said, have you ever had doubts about certain things about your faith? I bet every one of us would raise our hand. The guy on the platform would, just so you know. There's times where there's doubt. Now, it's not good to remain in that doubt, but to seek out the answer, right? And in fact, how do I, how do I know this? Josh, aren't you just, you're making yourself feel good, right? By saying that that's a common part of the life of a believer, isn't it? You're, you're just trying to make easier, easier mind. Well, every time doubt is mentioned in the New Testament, do you know who it refers to? I should say 99% of the time. There's one time where the word sometimes is translated doubt or that idea, but it's not, um, it's not. This case, but you know, 99% of the time, you know who it's referring to? Believers. It's referring to people who believe in Jesus and have trusted him, and it's saying they had doubt. Many people in the Bible go through period, a period or periods, plural, of doubt. You want some examples? How about Abraham? Abraham had some times of doubt in the Old Testament. We'll just start at the beginning. He was filled with doubt when God told him he was going to have a son. He doubted that seriously because like Zechariah, he was old, <laughs> like really old. And, and he doubted God. And he said, you know, when God tells him, oh, uh, you know, Abraham, you're going to have a son. It's going to come through Sarah. And he goes, oh, Lord, that's funny. Blessed be Ishmael, who he had had through his maidservant. You're a funny guy, God. That's a good one. I'm old. Yet... He had doubt. And then his wife, Sarah, when she overheard that conversation, what did she do? She laughed. And she had doubt. And fast forward a ways into the book of Exodus, and you run into a guy named Moses. And Moses had a formidable case of doubt when God told him to lead the people 
to lead him out of Israel, he said, I can't do it. I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not, not a very, I'm not a, I'm not a very, I'm not a very good speaker. I can't do it. He had a stutter. He, could, he said, I, I doubt it. I doubt it, God, that you're going to use me. He couldn't do it. Yet, you know what's curious is in Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the hall of faith sometimes. They start to study scripture, realize Hebrews chapter 11 lists all these people with great faith from the Old Testament. Do you know which three take up more space than anybody else in that chapter? Abraham, who had doubt. Sarah, who had doubt. And Moses, who had what? Doubt. It's a common part of the life of the believer. There's other people too, though. Gideon's one. He doubted that he was some kind of mighty warrior of God. When God told him that, he doubted that God was really going to use him, but he did. Zechariah, John's dad, doubted that God was really going to going to do what he said he was going to do. And then what happened to Zechariah? Well, he was mute for all nine months of the pregnancy. And then, you know, the greatest doubter of all in the Bible, right? Who is he? Doubting who? Thomas. Poor guy. He gets a bad rap. Everybody knows about doubting Thomas. What's Thomas do? Thomas gets to the point where Jesus uh, is resurrected and he hears about it and he says, no, I, I want to see him. I, I want to see his wounds. I want to see his side. I want to I want to see it for myself before I believe it. Now, I think Thomas believed, but he had to struggle to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, right? And in fact, the reason I know that his doubt was then a strengthening, a strengthener of his faith is because Thomas then makes one of the most profound statements of anybody else of belief in the New Testament. He says to Jesus when he sees him, he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas gets a bad rap. His doubt was a good thing. It confirmed his faith. The 12, Peter on the water. And all the 12 doubted at different times. Yet Acts 17, 6 says that God used these guys to turn the world upside down. So with that in mind, doubt is not unbelief and doubt is common in the life of the believer. Let's look this morning at the doubt of John the baptizer. So we're going to start again here in verse 18. Okay, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. They reported them to Jesus or to John, excuse me. All these things refers to everything that Jesus had done. We we just read last two weeks, right? He healed the centurion's servant. He raised the widow's son from the dead. Um, all kinds of other miracles that they had, he had done. John had disciples or followers who would um, who were being taught by him. And when Jesus comes along, he points them to Jesus. And you can see multiple times throughout the New Testament and through, through the Gospels where John's disciples are present in what, at, at things going on that Jesus is doing. They were kind of following him around just to see what this Jesus guy was all about. And at this time, they reported these things to John. Verse 19, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. Saying to the Lord, sent to them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, the reason John is sending them is because John at this point is in prison. You know why he's in prison? For preaching the truth. John, John was very much the prophet. You wouldn't hear a lot of grace in John's preaching. It was hellfire brimstone. Repent and believe, get baptized, get it straight, get it figured out. Right? I mean, that was just, that was John. He was straight to the point. And when he had the opportunity at one point, we'll, uh, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 3, you can read about it. He confronts Herod because he had uh, stolen his brother's wife and made her his own wife. And he said, what you're doing is an evil thing. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's wicked. He just called out his sin. And what did he do? Well, I'm not going to listen to that. Go to jail. So John is thrown in jail at this point. And he's in prison, and that's why he's saying these things, and he's sending them. But look at what John says. He has some doubt, doesn't he? He's probably been in prison, by the way, for about 18 months at this point. And he says, are you the one who is to come? That's what he wants to know from Jesus. Or shall we look for another? I would argue, again, John is not experiencing unbelief. He's just having some questions. 
He's been thrown in prison. He's been in prison, literally in the dungeon of a place called Macris. I'll show you a picture of it here in a little bit. And he, he was in the dungeon of this place for probably up to 18 months at this point. And he's been there a long time. He had had an incredibly successful ministry. Now he's in jail. And he's wondering, okay, the reason I'm in jail is because I'm preaching about Jesus. Jail isn't that pleasant. If Jesus is who I think he is and who I believe he is, then this is so worth it. But I'm going to double check. I'm going to double check. I'm going to make sure. That's what John's doing. His doubt is a questioning to confirm his faith. And that's what doubt is over and over in the New Testament and the lives of believers. And he says, are you the one who is to come, the coming one? That's the title of the Messiah from the Old Testament. Or should we look to another? Well, at this point, I want to look at some of the common causes of doubt. Some of John's cause for doubt, I believe, any of a number of these things, maybe all of them. And I think these things also translate into causes of doubt for us, for me, and for you. And so we're going to look at four of them. I think there's probably more we could come up with, but here's four of them, okay? Here's some, here's some things that might cause doubt for us today and probably cause doubt for John. One would be difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances cause doubt. Difficult circumstances do. Think about John. What was his difficult circumstance? <laughs> he had, he had, I mean, this guy, there was never anything written about John that would make you think John had somehow sinned or messed up or been unfaithful at some point like so many others in the Bible. No, John, there was nothing bad written about him. He had been completely faithful his entire life and preached God's word and pointed to Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, he willingly gives over everything to him. And yet now he finds himself in prison. And he's been there for months. A small dungeon. And it was in this place called Macris. It was a fortified city and uh, on the edge of the Dead Sea. And uh, you can see... You know, part of what would have been up here in this uh, Herodian city. And he was in the dungeon in that place. And here's why, why what got him there. If you want to read it, it's in Luke chapter 3, verses 18 through 10, 20. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. And he also publicly criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife. And for many other wrongs he had done. So Herod put John in prison, adding this sin to as many others. And he's thrown in prison. And by the way, John would end up spending the rest of his life there. He would spend the rest of his life there. Matthew chapter 14 tells us what ends up happening to John. Let me just fast forward and read this to you. When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, This must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. And it gives us a little parenthesis here. It says, For Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife, Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother, Philip. It's like an episode of Jerry Springer. John had been telling Herod, It's against God's law for you to marry her. And Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because all the people believed John was a prophet. But at a birthday party for Herod, Herodias' daughter performed a dance that greatly pleased him. So he promised with a vow to give her anything she wanted. See, Herod is just, is really messed up. We're not told if Herodias' daughter is his daughter or his niece, but either way, he gets aroused by her dance and says, I'll give you whatever you want. That's, that's messed up. So he promised with a vow to give her anything she wanted. And at her mother's urging, the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. Then the king regretted what he had said, but because of the vow he had made in front of his guests, he issued the necessary orders. So John was beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a tray given to the girl who took it to her mother. Later, John's disciples came for his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. So that's another reason I think it's clear that John is a follower and someone who knows and believes who Jesus is because he pointed all of his disciples to him. And when he dies, they bury him. And where do they go right away? They go to Jesus. They go to Jesus. But John, would you agree? He's got some difficult circumstances here. Now, now one great grace that he has is somehow he's still able to have visitors. And some of his disciples, at least, are able to come and talk to him and interact with him. And he's able to hear about the things Jesus is doing. 
But I think his difficult circumstances probably caused some doubt for him. Day after day, alone, in a dungeon, probably no light other than either up or a small window in the side of the room. What's your difficult circumstance? What's your difficult circumstance that maybe causes doubt? Is it work? Maybe you're looking for a job. Maybe your job's incredibly stressful right now. Um... Maybe it's really good, but it's just hard. Maybe there's a situation at work that's incredibly difficult. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe a loved one. Maybe you. Maybe it's the death of someone. Maybe it's family issues. Maybe it's just hard to stand up for Jesus and do what's right right now and whatever you have going on. In any case, difficult circumstances cause us to doubt God And if you dwell on those difficult circumstances and not on Jesus, you're going to find yourself remaining in your doubt rather than turning back to him to answer it. John found himself in difficult circumstances. Here's the second thing I think, other than difficult circumstances, is the world we live in can cause doubt. The world we live in can cause doubt. And all of these, by the way, a lot of these are kind of, you're going to see kind of mingled together. They kind of, uh, the lines are a little blurry But he says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another, John says. Well, one of the common ideas among the Jewish people at this time is that um, that before the Messiah would come, there would come some prophets. There would come Elijah and then Jeremiah and then a whole line of other prophets, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, however many are coming. And it was the common thought, the, the popular thought of the day. That's what they thought about to be true. And and so I'm pretty sure that's why when Matthew 16, when Jesus says to the disciples, who do men, who do people in this world say that I am? They say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets, you know, A, B, C, or D. That Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And they say, you're the Christ, the living God. And so there was this popular idea in the world John lived in that may have influenced him to have some questions. Are you really the one who is to come? Or are you one in just a long line of people coming before he comes like me? Cause that's, I'm, I'm one of those in that line. I think an example of this today might be um, some of the teaching on, on the rapture, things like that. Things we believe that maybe are popular ideas, but may not be rooted entirely in scripture. Um, at least in my opinion, on some of the things that the church teaches. But it's true for us in terms of just life. The world we live in influences what we believe, and it can cause doubt. By the way, I believe in the rapture. I just, a pre-tribulation rapture, I've taught through. You don't have to agree with me on that, by the way. I, I just, I don't see it very clearly in Scripture. I, I, I don't want to be unprepared. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong, and I hope Jesus comes back before that seven-year period. But I think that's a modern idea. And, and I think that instead he's probably coming back later during that time. And again, I really hope I'm wrong, but I want to be prepared in case I'm right. And I'm not caught off guard. And I don't have more doubts like John did maybe when he had a different idea than what was going to happen. But it's also true just in life. Some examples of things that uh, the world we live in, popular influences, create doubt for us. If you go to a church that teaches the prosperity gospel... You know, if you, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And the reason you're not one of those three or all of those three is you don't have enough faith. It's because of your doubt you don't have those things. And that's going to cause even more doubt, isn't it? Like, well, how do I ramp it up? How do I turn the crank and get enough faith that I get rich and get out of debt? Well, somebody needs to teach you just save your money and pay off your debt. Right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's... <laughs> But that's a prosperity gospel, and that causes all kinds of trouble for people. It's a popular idea because we want that to be true. The the flip side of that is a poverty gospel. You need to sell everything, and if you have any wealth whatsoever, you shouldn't enjoy it. You should get rid of it and follow Jesus. Well, every good and perfect thing comes from God above, so maybe he gave you some of your wealth simply to enjoy. But at the same time, you should be someone who gives, right, and gives generously, Another example, students, when you get to college, you head off to university especially, you're going to have doubt because there's going to be professors there. I had one when I was at Iowa State. um, And they're going to question whether or not God is real. They're going to say, if there's a loving God, why is there evil? 
There's evil, so there must not be a loving God. And if you're, you're telling me God just spoke and created everything. Have you ever heard of evolution? Have you ever heard of the Big Bang? I mean, and, and after a while, you're going to hear this over and over in the world you live in, and you're going to hear these ideas, and you're going to start to go, maybe I am crazy for believing this. Maybe I am wrong. What, what if that's not really what is true? And you've got to be rooted in what God's Word says, and you've got to go to Jesus with your doubts and to his Word. Number three, a third cause for doubt is a lack of knowledge. A lack of knowledge causes doubt. These last two kind of go hand in hand. For John, he didn't have all of the information. He didn't have his New Testament. He was living in it, right? He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't know that Jesus was going to be crucified, died, buried, and raised again from the dead. He he didn't know that yet for sure. He couldn't look back on it. Now, after his head was cut off by Herod, he knew it instantly that it was true, right? His faith became sight in an instant. But, But at this point, he has a lack of knowledge, He's, he's working at things from a different perspective than even you and I are. Not only that, but he's in prison, so that makes it difficult. But sometimes we doubt because of a lack of knowledge. Sometimes your doubt is rooted simply in the fact that you haven't been reading God's word. You haven't been studying it. You haven't been memorizing it. And you doubt all these things to be true. And I don't know. I don't know if I can believe that. I don't know if I trust that. I don't. And I say, okay, well, how, how are things going for you in terms of Reading God's word. Well, I, I read the book of Jude last year. It's like 20 verses. <laughs> you know, I, I, hear, I hear passages once in a while at youth group, or I hear them in my Bible study, or I hear them on Sunday morning, or maybe on the radio. No, no, no. What, what, do you know God's word? Do you know it to be true? Sometimes maybe your doubt is simply a lack of knowledge. When we're new in our faith, this is often the case, isn't it? And you can be hit with some doubts. But you know what's really curious to me is that usually people who are new in their faith tend to have the strongest faith and the least doubts, even though they have the least knowledge. (laughs) And as they grow in their faith, if they don't continue to increase in knowledge and learn continually like we talk about it, right? Then what's going to happen is they're going to get old and they're going to be 30 years old in the faith but an inch deep in the faith. And because of a lack of knowledge, they're going to start to have doubts about what's really true. Well, John had a lack of knowledge in terms of revelation, but don't have a lack of knowledge by not studying God's word on your own. Number four, this fourth one, and they go hand in hand, is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. I think it's coming. Wait for it. Might have to help me there, Rachel. Unmet expectations. These can be right expectations that go unmet, or they can be wrong expectations that are never going to be met because they're wrong. Unmet expectations is a big one. Now, I think this is probably the primary one in John's case, having unmet expectations of what was going to happen. He had certain expectations about what the Messiah was going to do, and these went unmet in his earthly lifetime. And here's why. Can I take you to college for a second? I teach a class, one of the classes I teach at Grace. I'm just going to show you some slides from that class and teach through this this idea a little bit to help you understand John's unmet expectations. I'll do this quickly. You with me? All right. Here we go. All right. You're going to have to help me because it's not working. There we go. Jewish expectations for the Messiah were this. There's this age where we live now and God is ruling and reigning over it. And then there's coming a time where the day of the Lord is going to come and the Messiah is going to come and there's going to be judgment and there's going to be salvation, judgment for the people who don't love him and salvation for the people who do love God. And then there's going to be an age to come and it's going to be really good for the people who love Jesus and really bad for the people who don't, right? That's their, that's their understanding of the end times. And that would have been John's understanding. And the way they would have seen this playing out is you've got this age And again, the day of the Lord comes, and then the age to come is initiated, and salvation and judgment come at the day, the great and awesome day of the Lord. That would have been John's perspective, and what he would have been taught growing up from his, again, his lack of knowledge, his lack of revelation because of where he lived. But that was his understanding of how all this was going to play out. But then we get into the New Testament, and here's how they teach, how the New Testament explains these things to us. One, it, it agrees. We live in, an, in this age. This, that's this age. And there's coming a time where there's going to be the day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
But, and then after that, the age to come is what the Jewish people would have thought. But what we learn in the New Testament through Jesus is that when Jesus shows up on the scene, the age to come begins. And the age to come is inaugurated when Jesus shows up. When he first shows up, it's inaugurated. And at the day of the Lord, it'll be consummated. And so there's this sense where, and John didn't get this, that these two ages overlapped. He saw it all as one event. Day of the Lord, salvation, judgment, boom, here we go. Okay, here's the day of the Lord. Jesus is here, but where is the salvation and judgment? Where'd it go? What's happening? Why don't I see it? Again, the the question, though, even if that's true, is where is salvation and judgment? Where does it happen? And when you get into this New Testament idea, where where is salvation and judgment? Where does it take place? Well, 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For God says at just the right time, or your translation may say the favorable time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time, the favorable time is right now. Today is the day of salvation. In other words, with Jesus first coming, that day of salvation, that salvation part of the day of the Lord has happened. So in a sense, there's almost, the day of the Lord is split into two days, when Jesus first comes and when he comes again. And and this day of the Lord, day of salvation, stretches out between salvation and judgment. And that's the time we live in now. It's a favorable time when you can have salvation, when you can turn to Jesus. And, and when the day of the Lord comes, salvation has come and judgment is delayed at Jesus' first coming. And we got to go, okay, so John is an incredibly smart guy. How did he mess this up? Why didn't he understand that there was this gap? Why did he see it all as one event? Are you tracking with me? Why did he only see it as one event? And it's this idea in Scripture of telescoping prophecy. We talked about this when we talked through Revelation. And here's how this works. Imagine, when, it's, it's a lot like looking at a scenic mountain view. It's been described that, that the prophets would have seen peaks of the mountains from their vantage point, but they can't discern the gaps in between them. And it's often referred to as telescoping prophecy. So imagine you go out on a scenic drive through the mountains and you pull over at one of those nice spots and you sit on the bench and you pull out your phone and your selfie stick and you take a picture, Right? And it's just beautiful. You're looking at it. And the way you see it is you see the trees and you see the mountain ranges behind. But you know it's all there. You could identify each of the highest points. But you know what you have no clue about from your vantage point? You have no idea how much distance there is between each of those mountain peaks. You have no idea. Is it 100 miles? Is it 10 miles? Is it 100 yards? What's the distance between those mountain peaks? You can't really tell from your vantage point. Well, when the prophets would have had prophecy told to them, they would have seen it oftentimes as one picture. And they see the peaks of the mountain out into the distance. And from their perspective, sometimes it looks like it's all happening at one point, right? But as time goes on, you find out, no, there's actually a gap between some of those mountain peaks. And there's time in between. And so this first mountain peak is salvation and the judgment mountain peak doesn't come until much later, in the prophecy of the day of the Lord. And, and it's called telescoping prophecy because it's like a telescope, right? It gets stretched out and pushed in and stretched out. And that's why it's called telescoping prophecy. Well, that's the cause of John's doubt, unmet expectations. But unmet expectations also cause doubt for us. Again, if you believe a wrong gospel, like a prosperity gospel, you're going to have unmet expectations of what God's going to do for you and what he's promised for you. Sometimes your expectations are right, but they go unmet because someone sins or someone doesn't follow through or it's just delayed. (laughs) And those unmet expectations now cause doubt for you to doubt God's goodness and to doubt his grace to you. And the key question for you this morning in those causes of doubt, and we could list others, is what will you do with your doubt? What will you do with it? What will you do with it? You you could do a few things. You could just sit there with it and think about it and dwell on it and worry about it and never get any answers. And then suddenly, I don't know about you, but what happens to me when I do those things, it grows (laughs) and it snowballs and it becomes this big monster that I can't escape. 
Or maybe you could just go talk to people about it, which is great if you talk to the right people. But if you talk to the wrong people, again, your doubt's just going to be multiplied. Look what John does. When the men had come to him, they said, they came to Jesus as John's disciples. They said, John the Baptist sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Notice very clearly what's happening here. John believes he's thrown in prison and begins to develop some questions because of some of the causes we've talked about. And then what's he do? He takes his doubt to Jesus. John takes his doubt to Jesus. What do you do with your doubt? Doubt in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a good starting point. It's a great starting point because it causes you to question and really make your faith true and real. But the question is, what do you do with your doubt? Do you go to Jesus? Specifically, do you go to God's word? Because if you don't, then your doubt is going to consume you and paralyze you and shipwreck your faith. Get it answered. Go to Jesus. Go to his word. That's what John does. And if you're wondering, well, yeah, I would take my doubt to Jesus, but Jesus is going to think I'm, I'm, I'm really weak. And I mean, I, I've been following Jesus for years. I've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And if, if I admit I've got some doubts, oh, he's going to be so angry with me. He, he's just going to be upset. That's not a good thing, Josh. I can't do that. I can't do that. I've got to save face with Jesus. Think about that. He knows everything, right? I mean, come on. But the other thing, look at how John re- or Jesus replies to John. John, I mean, Jesus could have went, John, come on. Dude, your dad is a pastor. Your grandfather's on both sides. Your, everybody's been in ministry in your family. You've been taught the word from the time you were young growing up. You know these things to be true. You were out in the wilderness preaching God's word. You were preaching about me. And when I showed up, you pointed to everybody and said, hey, that, that's the Messiah. You, you know this is the truth. Come on, John, get, get with the program. Is that what Jesus does? Let's see what he does. Look at verse 21. In that hour, when John's disciples came, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Think about it. These guys had gone back to John after seeing all the things Jesus did. They go back with a question for John uh, to Jesus. They ask Jesus that question. Are you the one who is to come or should he wait for another? And Jesus says, watch. And he starts doing all these things, healing people and doing miracles and proving himself to be true. And then he turns to him. And, And really, in a sense, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, you know what? I love John. Let me do this. This is for John. This is for John. Watch this. And he answered them. He said, go tell John what you've seen and heard. Tell him that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Go and tell John. Go and tell him. Just tell him. I'm not angry with him. He's doing a great thing. Go reassure him of what's happening here. Because John would have recognized all these things of being prophesied about who the true Messiah was and what the true Messiah would do. And I'm telling you, when you go to Jesus with your doubts, number one, he is very much big enough to answer them. Very much. Very much big enough to shoulder them and to help you through them. And he loves for you to do that. Maybe you'd think of this image as we close. When I was little, um, I remember taking swimming lessons when I was young. And it was always kind of scary to jump into the deep end of the pool. So before I ever jumped into the deep end, we'd jump into the shallow end. And what I would do is I had those floaties. And I've got a picture somewhere. I was really hoping I could find it, and I couldn't find it. But I had those floaties, right? And not only floaties, but then I had goggles because I didn't want my eyes to get stinged from the chlorine and you know, the thing to pinch my nose shut, so I want to get water in my nose. And what would happen is I would be on the edge of the pool with my floaties, three, four years old. And, and I remember my dad, my swimming instructor, different people being in the pool saying, jump, you can do it. But will you catch me? I know I can jump and I believe you'll catch me, but I just don't know if I really believe. I, I struggled to believe. Now, If I'd have had an awful dad, if I'd have had an awful swimming teacher, 
they would have looked at me and they would have turned and walked away and said, you're an idiot. You know I'm going to catch you. We've done this before. We've done it before. Just jump. Come on. But what did they do? No, they encouraged me. And instead, actually, oftentimes they would step closer. And sometimes to the point where they're actually holding my hand before I even jump. You know, if you take your doubts to God, that's what he does. He comes near to you. And he takes you. And he shows you what's true. And he helps you to trust more deeply in his word. So take your doubts to Jesus and take them to God's word. It's true. It's absolutely true. Let me pray. We'll take our offering, sing, and call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. And thanks that your word is true and that you are faithful. And that when we have doubt, when we have questions, we can turn to you with them. That we don't need to remain in it and stew on it on our own and let it become uh, something that paralyzes us and um, shipwrecks our faith. But instead, Jesus, you offer for us to come to you. In a sense, you're standing in the pool saying, jump, I'll catch you. Trust me. And each time when we call to you, you come closer and you show yourself to us. I believe that with all my heart because I've seen it to be true in my own life. Father, I pray for each one here that um, whatever their doubts may be, maybe they've grown to the point where doubting is, is uh, few and far between for them, which is a great thing, and thank you for that. There's others, though, Father, who have significant doubts, uh, maybe because of hard circumstances or because of the influences of the world or uh, a lack of understanding and knowing your word or, or simply expectations that have gone unmet or maybe a host of other things. But if they've truly trusted you, Jesus, and truly believe in you, they need to know that, that that's just there to strengthen their faith. And I pray you'd give them courage to draw near to you and that you would draw near to them as they do. I pray for those two, Father, who've never trusted you, who've never crossed the line and, and put their faith, Jesus, in you for their salvation. Might today be the day that they do it. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.